Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by Elec 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, a part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, a lot of baseball talk this week. We'll get to our football talk in a little bit. Tell me what you think about what the Phillies did at the trade deadline. Do you want to talk more about the, what the Phillies did as far as what they acquired, or do you want to talk about more about the, the fact that it doesn't even matter who they acquired, it's who they got rid of? Well, that's what I was more excited about is the corresponding moves of some of the players that we have said we wanted gone um, relentlessly here of Odubel Herrera, Yuri's Familia, but Didi went, uh, Johan Camargo went back down, and Belly Falter went back down. Talk to me about what they got and what you think about it. You know, I don't know too much about uh, Marsh. I mean, people are saying that he's a good center fielder as far as defense goes. I hope that they can fix him hitting wise because you look at his statistics and it's not exactly impressive. I heard in and, an interview that he has sort of analysis by paralysis by analysis now. Like he kind of overthinks it and they just need to get him back to basics. But it seems like that move wasn't about the bat. It was about the field. Look, I know nothing about overthinking anything. Anybody who knows me would never accuse me of overthinking <laughs> it, right? <laughs> Ever. <laughs> but, There's no walk of life where I would do that. I, I would be a great center fielder, apparently. But if that's his case and somehow Long is going to be able to fix it, wonderful. But if he doesn't fix it, then the question is, is why didn't you just leave Matt Veerling out there and he could hit seven home runs to 10 home runs a year. He can bat 230 and he could play good defense. I guess the thought was that Logan Ohapi is blocked by JT Real Muto and therefore they make the move for Marsh because he's only 24. He was taken in the same draft as Moniak who went in the Syndergaard trade. You have him under control for a couple years you take so, a chance. Well, so what? Because so in, I, I hate that are, phrase that you have them under control. But, but in like, this lineup, do you need the center fielder to have all the pop? They need somebody who can actually catch the ball out in the outfield. They have guys who can hit the ball. The, then if, if everybody wants to make that argument and you want to cross your fingers and hope that works out, I'm good with that. You I, can do that. I'm not saying uh, my, that my these... problem. It's not just you. It's it's uh, that's all I heard is he's under control for a while. If you suck and you're under control, who cares? But that's the argument you have to make if you want the trade to work out, because otherwise you say, no, well, why didn't really they not. go? Why didn't they go and trade more to get something that was more of a certainty in center field and instead got a question mark when they could have put in, put Veerling out there? I am a Logan Ohapi fan. I know you, you are. are. Okay. And that's the, okay. That's so the... we've we've had the chance to interview him. He's great. His family's great. He had. It looks like he has a great future. I hope it works out for him. I would have liked to seen it here, but more importantly, if you're going to make the argument that he's blocked by JT Realmuto, then you should have gotten more from him than an under control guy who hits less than a dozen home runs a year who plays good defense. If you were going to move him, I would have preferred that he was the foundation for a larger pitcher deal as opposed to going after Cindergard. Radon. You're talking about Radon. Yeah, if you're going to if you're going yeah, to right. make that kind of move, go after a pitcher like that 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 hopefully will fit in the spot. You're hoping that Cindergard, who is a different type pitcher than he was when he threw 100, he throws in the low 90s now and is more a controlled guy than he mm -hmm. was then. We'll see if that works out. So he, he, here's here's where I'm going to sit there and tell you the Phillies may be sitting there today and smacking their head and going, oh, what did we do? The day after the trade deadline, the Red Sox released Jackie Bradley Jr. 
Would you rather have Marsh or Jackie Bradley Jr. as your center fielder? Well, in the short term, I would rather have Jackie Bradley Jr. Because, I mean, Logan uh, Ohio, he would still okay. be in the system. Exactly. So, but look, I'm so, not going to so, go after Dombrowski for trying to make moves. I don't know if they were the right moves. We'll see if giving up Ben Brown, who was an arm they supposedly coveted, moved up for David Robertson, who came right in and looked good, is, is the right thing to do. Look, they had needs, and they filled those needs. Whether they're good enough fills is something to see, Good enough for what? Okay, so so here's the problem with making moves like this for this year. If you're making these moves for this, this year. For the wild card. I don't get it. Okay, so you're the seventh best team in the National League. I'm, I'm That's with the you. best they're going to do. They're not passing the Padres, I'm right? I'm so, so they're not passing the Braves or the Mets, whoever it is, ends up in second place. So you are the last wild card in, and you are not beating anybody. Jeff, in the playoffs. I want to leave the Phillies talk there. Before we go to our interview with Jason Reed, uh, voice of a lot of people's childhood, Vince Scully passed this week. Uh, you texted me right away with your first memory. Go ahead, give it a shout out. I, I, can, I can tell you. I mean, you you and I talk all the time about how these, these announcers are the voices of our generation. They narrated so many events. Everybody almost can relate to Vince Scully for the last 50 years. For me... It was he called game six of the 1986 World Series. For Mets fans, it was the Mookie Wilson hit. For Red Sox fans, it was the Bill Buckner mistake. So that's that's the immediate thing I think of is that he was the narration for a game that I ran down the halls in college celebrating. And see, I remember the Dodgers walk off with Kirk Gibson. That's the call mm-hmm. that, that immediately comes to my mind. But, I mean, there was some kind of stat that I sent you that he called – Four percent of all of the baseball games that ever occurred in baseball before there was TV, there was Who Vince figured Scully. that out. Somebody had a lot of time on their hands. Yeah. Jeff, why don't we go to our Jason Reed conversation, and when we come back, we'll talk more about it. All right, senior NFL writer for ESPN's Anscape, Jason Reed, joins us to talk about his new book out this week, Rise of the Black Quarterback: What It Means for America. Jason, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for the time today. No, guys, thank you for having me. This is a very timely book, given everything that is going on in society and the league. And we wanted to walk through it because you really do a deep dive into what's going on. You, you've talked about how black quarterbacks have gone from some of the most marginalized to some of the highest paid and biggest stars in the league. And you had a series of, on the year of the black quarterback in 2019 that seems to have the reporting kind of led to the book. Can you talk about the genesis of this book coming together? Yeah, well, I, I approached my editors at ESPN uh, before the 2019 season, and I told them I, I would like to spend the season looking at the emergence of black quarterbacks in the NFL because it was we were going into the 100th season of the NFL, which the NFL was obviously celebrating. And it, it just seemed to me that there had never been more superstar black passers in the NFL I mean, in the game's history and the juxtaposition of, you know, celebrating that anniversary um, or commemorating the the 100 season, I should say. And the fact that this group that was once the most marginalized in the game, black men who wanted to play quarterback in the NFL, how did they get to this point? I thought to myself in 2019, where they were on the verge potentially of having their greatest season ever collective. And as it turned out, Lamar Jackson won the league's MVP award. He became only the second 
uh, player, or excuse me, second quarterback to win the award unanimously, joining Tom Brady. Patrick Mahomes won the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl MVP award. Uh, you had Kyler Murray, who was the rookie of the year. You had uh, who else? Well, I mean, Russell Wilson was had a great season in Seattle. Matter of fact, if if uh, any other players would have received votes in the MVP voting, it would have been Russell Wilson would have finished second. He had such a great season. And then you had Dak Prescott in Dallas, who had a phenomenal year. So as it turned out, the year of the black quarterback in the NFL truly was that. Never before had black quarterbacks accomplished more, been in such a position of, of influence in the league. And from that, it was kind of a jumping off point to, to doing this book. I was approached by some people who said, hey, you know, we've been following this series and we think there's a book in it. And so uh, as it turned out, you know, 75 interviews or so and 88,000 words or so later, we have Rise of the Black Quarterback. You know, as part of what you were just talking about, at one point you referred to quarterbacks as passers. What is the, what the relevance of how black quarterbacks were perceived as far as passers or what they were uh, pigeonholed into earlier in their career as running quarterbacks? Well, you know, in college, college offenses are not historically like NFL pro style offenses. And so, you, you know, you had black quarterbacks in college who were often option quarterbacks. Okay. And so the NFL game is a drop back game where you drop back and you, you survey the defense and you throw the ball. And for most, the reason black men who played quarterback in college and not all black men who played quarterback in college were option quarterbacks, you know, many dropped back and threw the ball, but the belief was that black quarterbacks lack the intelligence first and foremost to play the position, but that also they would just take off and run from the pocket because I mean, it's crazy to say this now but because the belief was that they weren't tough enough to stand in the pocket. They lacked the heart, to face the pass rush. So the belief was, and obviously it's a very wrong-headed belief, is that black quarterbacks would just take off and then the offense would just break down. So these teams, these team owners, these team executives simply did not want to have black quarterbacks playing the position because they didn't think they were capable of playing the way you had to play in the pros, but also they just thought, hey, again, inferior, lack the intelligence, you know, to, to read a defense and they would not be able to lead white men. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it now that, that this is, this is, it wasn't even something like uh, this was a, like an outlier in terms of, you know, the belief, this was just what was accepted. So yeah, it's, uh, it's come a long way obviously. Yeah. And look, I mean, you, you go into this in the book that the perception was they lacked the work ethic the intelligence to comprehend the playbook, the inability to lead white men. I mean, anything that you could put on them not able to do the job seemed to have been put on them, including they should switch positions. And, and I'm curious because you talk to a lot of the pioneers for this book, and, and some people have tried to look at how the black quarterbacks have evolved to play the position. Can you talk about how the evolution you mentioned, the owners, the executives and coaches, that seems to be where the evolution has been greater because a black oh, quarterback yeah. seems to still be doing what they're doing and we're always capable of doing, but it seems that the eyes have been open to the people leading the league to their ability to do it. A absolutely. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump in there, but you're, you're so right about that. It's that, you know, it's like 
it's like Chris Rock does this joke about the fact that it's not that Barack Obama was the first black man capable of being president. It's that enough white people changed on their end to let a black man become president. And I, and, and I remember when I heard the joke, I, I thought about it from the perspective of what you just said. Like, it's not like, it's not like black quarterbacks were incapable of playing in the NFL or playing in the NFL regularly before the 1990s. It's just that the white team owners and general managers and head coaches did not want them. And the, you know, what changed was, is that the color green finally trumped black when the league exploded and because of the TV revenue and because of the popularity, all of a sudden, you know, you know, and eclipsing major league baseball as the number one sport in the country, when the money exploded to the point where team owners were putting so much pressure on their coaches and their executives to win. You, these guys could no longer just you know, cast aside a black quarterback because he's black. They, they, they couldn't because they had to win to keep their jobs because the money was just so massive. So yeah, th there were quarterbacks throughout the, the last century who could have been stars in the fifties and the sixties, but it took, a change on, you know, within ownership, team ownership and the team executives and the coaches to open up their minds up to say, well, okay, yeah, this person's black, but you know, I got to keep my job. So yeah, let me see now. So it, it raises a question that we talk about, especially with the NFL, you cover, you've covered the NFL for a long time. The, the NFL seems to be very reactive compared to most other leagues. They are not proactive. And, and, and to me, that's part of the problem. What did you see with ownership and why the NFL is always seems to be behind the eight ball with regard to real issues, social issues? Well, you know, I mean, here's the thing. Social issues divide people. I mean, we, we know that. And, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead a little here to, to try to give the best possible answer that I can formulate in this question. Let's look at the Colin Kaepernick situation. Now, we know that where people stood on that largely fell along racial lines, like based on polling, most black people, generally speaking, supported what Kaepernick did. Those who were polled, most white people, according to polling, generally did not support his former protest. So when we talk about why the NFL is and, and you're absolutely right on this, is kind of reluctant to get involved with this is because the NFL is 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 a is a money generating operation. Okay. The, the profits are, are just enormous. It's a multi-billion dollar league and anything that the NFL would get involved in that would potentially turn off its fans. And by fans, I mean, generally speaking, white fans is not something that team owners are interested in. You know, team owners are interested in keeping the butts in, in the seats, keeping the parking coming in, keeping the concessions coming in. They get so much money from TV, obviously, but there's a ton of money generated on game days as well at these stadiums. So, you know, we, we talk about, you know, and you're so right about this. It, it looks like they're late to get in. I would even submit it's just that they don't want to get in, you know, and, and that they've been forced to get in at times. But it, it's not something that the league wants to do because, you know, they, they just don't want to, these team owners just don't want to take a chance on offending white fans. So do you think that also applied to, to why it took so long for black quarterbacks to be accepted by ownership? Was it, was it, wasn't more than just whatever preconceived notions they had that they were concerned about their fan base and, and how people would react to the black quarterback? Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 
it all goes, it all goes in, it all dovetails here. I mean, you, you look at the situation where America was in the fifties and the sixties. Uh, and again, I guess I should make the distinction where white America was in the fifties and sixties. The, the belief was among many, many people that black men are just inherently inferior. So you start with that, you start with that premise. And then from there, the quarterback position quarterback, is the is the most important position not just in football but in team sports and quarterbacks are the leaders of the team so if you start from the position that that black men are inherently inferior to white men and then why would you if you're a team owner put a black man in a position to lead your team that could you know undoubtedly anger most of your fans okay so it it was the racism present with the owners, but it was also the fact that owners were reflecting what they believed their fan base wanted. So yeah, it absolutely was. And, you know, and, and to your point, um, and, and I, and I'm, I don't want to mess you guys up in the sequence you wanted to go, but, but Marlon Briscoe was the first black quarterback, starting quarterback of the modern era when he got in uh, to, for the old uh, in the Denver Broncos of the old AFL, he had a great rookie season he 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 sets a, a Broncos rookie record for touchdown passes. He finishes high in the NFL rookie of the year voting. And they simply take the job away from him because the team was afraid, in large part, that their white fan base would be angered moving forward a black quarterback. They threw Marlin in the game when the starter got hurt and other guys weren't effective. And they were having a bad season. So that was one thing. But to, to have Marlin start a season and build a team around him, that was a bridge too far. Yeah, they excluded him from the summer things. By the way, I appreciate the Paul Robes at Rutgers shout-out as a Rutgers grad because Jeff is <laughs> oh, a go. man, uh, <laughs> does not treat Rutgers kindly. So I, I did appreciate that. But, you know, we've we've sort of walked through that. With, we had Keyshawn Johnson on when we talked about their book, The Forgotten First. And mm-hmm. you go through some of that in your chapters on, on barring them from playing the reintegration piece and the NFL moving. I'm curious, how did Warren Moon change things? A man who was undrafted as a black quarterback ended up being sort of the black quarterback that changed the perception, it seems, before Doug Williams really shattered it. Can you talk about the importance of Warren Moon? Warren Moon is is such a, a, a massive figure in this whole thing. You know, you, you, you mentioned the, the Doug Williams performance. Doug Williams in the Super Bowl in 87, first black man to start in the Super Bowl, win the game's MVP award with this record-setting performance against the Denver Broncos, throwing touchdown passes everywhere. Black men were not supposed to be able to start in the Super Bowl, lead a team to a victory, and play, you know, just, uh, you know, exceedingly well. That, that, that was not supposed to happen. So that was a seminal moment in, like, changing the the or not even changing, I would say planting a seed that, okay, maybe these guys can do this. But Warren Moon, Warren Moon really advanced the ball. You know, here's a guy who at the University of Washington, 1978, he's a senior. He's being booed by fans. He's the quarterback of the University of Washington, and he's being booed at home games. And he winds up uh, winning the conference co-player of the year award. He leads Washington to a Rose Bowl victory, does not get drafted in the NFL. Now that would never happen with a co-player of the year quarterback who has all the measurables at a major conference. It, I mean, it would never happen today, but back in 1978, 
Ward doesn't get drafted. Yes, he goes up to Canada, proves himself in Canada, shatters records, wins, wins championships. Finally, the, the, he, he gets signed as a free agent by the Houston Oilers. And after a, a, a transition period, he, 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 he struggled a little bit starting out. He goes on this great run. He winds up going to nine Pro Bowls. He finishes, he finishes uh, in the 1990 season. I believe he finished third in the MVP voting. And, and what he does is he shows as, as a classic drop-back passer, not a guy who's running out the pocket, as a classic drop-back passer, well, wait a minute. You know, the Doug Williams thing, you know, even if, if, if some owners thought, well, this is just a one-off, you know, this is just this – this will never happen again. Warren Moon showed that, no, black quarterbacks really can do this on a consistent basis throughout a season and excel. So, yeah, he – Warren moved the ball – considerably. And I like to say that Doug shattered the myths, but then Warren showed that this could be a viable thing for owners to, to, to do, have black quarterbacks starting and succeeding. So did what Warren did open the door for the draft and open the door for the likes, especially for this town of people like Donovan McNabb being drafted? Yeah, you know, war, so it, it it really is like there's a there's a through line and a timeline. It's Doug Williams in 1987 plants the seed with that in, in, incredible Super Bowl performance. Warren Moon comes in finally, you know, early 90s, you know, and in, into the you know mid 90s, and, and and really shows this can be done. And also we have Randall Cunningham. You know, I mean, <laughs> Randall Cunningham. He's he's this 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 guy. You, you know, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, not a football factory, not a football powerhouse by any means. Um, he plays he plays quarterback there. He's a quarterback. He's a punter. Very, you know, very talented punter as well. And the Eagles draft him in the second round. Now, when he finally gets in there, when he finally becomes a starter, all of a sudden he does things the league has never seen before. He's this dual threat quarterback who you know has this cannon of an arm but he's all he, he can run for four he can pass for four thousand yards and run for a thousand yards and the league had just never seen anything the likes of him and you know one of the things i love about the randall chapter is talk to carl banks the great uh a former outside linebacker on those bill parcells giants teams and mm-hmm. new york giants teams and you know there was this game of monday night football where and, I, and I, any Philadelphia football fan, I'm I still sure remember this. it. You say it, and I remember it clear as day. You know, he Carl Banks hit Randall Cunningham as hard as Carl Banks could hit anyone, and and Randall Cunningham puts his his hand on the old Veterans Stadium, uh, you know, that carpet that that horrible carpet they had there with all the seams and everything, <laughs> you know, the concrete that they had there. puts his puts his hand on the concrete, stables himself. Gets up, stabilizes himself, gets up and throws a touchdown pass. And, you know, Carl Banks was just like, well, how did that happen? And Randall Cunningham was dubbed the ultimate weapon because of all the things he could do on the field. Now, you know, so so we see that what Doug Williams did, what Warren Moon did. And then Randall Cunningham shows that quarterbacks who are athletic and who can also throw the ball, there's a spot for them in the league now. Because when when, you, when the team has the ultimate weapon, well, other teams want to look at that too. And the NFL is such a copycat league. Like when when one team sees that something is working, another team is going to do it. Now, the thing about Randall and and Warren Moon is, for all the success they had, they didn't have playoff success. 
And the reality of it is in the NFL, you were judged as a quarterback where well, you, you get paid in the NFL as a quarterback on two things on what you do on third down and what you do off schedule and plays break down. But your legacy is defined by Super Bowls. So if, if you don't win Super Bowls, there's always going to be a knock on you as a quarterback. But in this journey of the black quarterback and this rise of the black quarterback in the NFL, Doug Williams to Warren Moon to Randall Cunningham, that really is what gets the momentum finally going. And then, you know, that gives way. You mentioned Donovan McNabb. The 1999 NFL draft where Donovan McNabb is taken second overall, three black quarterbacks are taken in the first round. Donovan McNabb, Dante Culpepper, and Achilles Smith. And that was really the watershed moment because it was like the league was acknowledging what we saw from Doug Williams. Okay, yeah, we thought maybe, well, this might just be a fluke. Then we saw Warren Moon and Randall Cunningham. And now we have to acknowledge that there is a place for these for, for these guys in this league. And then the next step is a black quarterback being drafted number one in the draft with Michael Vick. Now, I'm curious with Randall and, and Michael Vick, they were not your traditional pocket passers, even though Warren Moon ran he was a pocket passer. He was a passer. You know, uh, Vic and, and Randall, they were weapons. Can, can you talk about the NFL wasn't really ready to accept weapons? Even once they wanted a black quarterback, they wanted them to fit the role of the traditional quarterback in the league? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's 100% true because the NFL is a copycat league, but it's also a league that's slow to evolve. And when you talk about Randall, Randall was something the league had never seen before, but there wasn't then a rush to go out and, and try to duplicate that because that's a hard thing to do. I mean, you know, Randall had incredible arm. He was a great athlete, but he also had incredible arm strength. So it's not just like teams were going to be willing to can continually gamble on, okay, can we find another guy like that? Because Randall was so unique. But by the time Michael Vick came along in 2001, it was just undeniable that this guy was – you know, he, he, he was faster than wide receivers and cornerbacks and had a cannon for an arm. And so he was going to be the number one draft pick. It was the first time a, a black quarterback was taking number one overall in the NFL draft. So his talent was too much for to be ignored. But there was still, by the time Vic came along, a negative connotation with black men at that position who ran. Now, Michael Vick had success in Atlanta, but, you know, there was a lot of talk about, well, he doesn't read defenses very well. and um, He doesn't study hard enough. And now truthfully, you know, look, there are no sacred cows. Uh, no one is red shirting in the NFL. Everyone is, is open to criticism. The scoreboard dictates that. But he never okay? had a study clause in his contract. <laughs> he didn't, but he, but Randall, excuse me, not Randall. Michael did come out later and say, you know, he wishes he would have studied harder earlier. And that, you know, and I remember when, he, when I heard that interview, I was like, okay, well, that's going to reinforce, you know, perceptions and stereotypes. But he admitted he didn't, and that is on him. Um, I, but I, I think that the progress, and I'm, I'm going a little far afield here now, but I think the progress shows that in years past, Michael Vick saying he didn't study would have put a cloud over all black men at the position. But I think we've made progress. I know we've made progress because what Michael Vick, did does not reflect on Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson, whereas years past it would have still. Okay, so that that raises the question. We've now had in the last week the issues with Kyler Murray. 
do you think that we've now, if the NFL and society has evolved to the point that that Kyler, the Kyler Murray issue uh, and the clause that was put in his contract and now removed will not put a cloud over other black quarterbacks? Let me let me answer this in, in two ways. First of all, I feel that the Kyler Murray situation with with the uh, independent study addendum is specific to Kyler Murray. Okay. I, I, I don't think that, that we, we should look at that and say, well, this is a reflection of how the NFL feels about black quarterbacks. Agreed. Now, ha- now having said that the reality of it is this will put a cloud over Kyler Murray for the rest of his career and people uh, I should say people who aren't very enlightened will then lump every, all the black quarterbacks in together. Say, yeah, you see, they, they really don't study. You know, I talked to Warren Moon about this the other day. Warren gave me a lot of time for the book. And, you know, I, I was debating this with Warren because my thing was, look, this is specific to Kyler Murray. And by the way, it was a horrible move by the Arizona Cardinals on so many fronts. Uh, I, I mean, by like, everybody, you know, by his agent, yeah, by, his by agent, everybody by him, everybody who yeah, agreed I mean, to it. <laughs> yeah, the agent should have made sure that was out of the final paperwork. And, you know, and let me just backpedal here for a second. The, the only way you can read that independent study addendum is that someone high up enough in the Cardinals organization or multiple people high up enough who had the, the, the stature within the organization to have influence over the franchise quarterback's contract felt that Colin Murray does not study enough. Now, the best possible spin you can put on it is that generally speaking, they, they were okay with his study habits and they believe in him because you don't guarantee someone $160 million, the second biggest guarantee in the history of the game, if you're not all in on it. But maybe they felt, okay, look, he's, he studies fine, but this guy could be one of the all-time greats, so maybe if you prod him just a little bit. But you don't put that in a contract. That's a conversation you have with him and his agent before you sign the contract. Additionally, look, and, I, and you know, talking to quarterbacks about this, Four hours of additional study time on your own. I mean, it's nothing. It's such a small amount. It's like, well, if if you're going to put something like that in there, which you shouldn't, it's got to be something like, you know, 12 to 15 hours a week because four hours a week is nothing. The Cardinals really stepped into it here and and they messed up and they know they messed up because they removed the clause. But but back to what the original question was, it does not, in my mind, show a reflection of what the league thinks of black quarterbacks. It, it was a columnary specific thing, but it can have the effect of putting a cloud over all of these guys. And, you know, Patrick Mahomes addressed this and these anonymous quotes in the athletic about him and, and Lamar Jackson. He said, you know, we black quarterbacks have had to fight to get here and we've proven that we should have been here all along. But the way we're evaluated, the language does seem still a little different than the way some other people evaluate it. So, and that's something that I just think is going to be here because, like, you know, we haven't eradicated a racism. We haven't eradicated racism and coded language in the country. So I, I think that it's, it's naive of us to think that we could eradicate it in the NFL. And, you know, Patrick Mahomes spoke for all black quarterbacks, past, present, and future. 
I mean, they may be allowed on the field at the same time now, but they're still playing a different game at times in terms of the way that they're evaluated. You mentioned Patrick Mahomes, and and we've touched on Colin Kaepernick and and social justice. This is more than a football book. So anybody who looks at it as this is about black players getting on a football field, you're missing the larger point, in my opinion, of this. In the Patrick Mahomes chapter, you talk about just how thoughtful he is when it comes to utilizing his platform and the the eye-opening he had around George Floyd. Um, can you explain how he realized the importance of utilizing his platform to influence social justice, but also the process he went through by deciding whether to weigh in, which was different than Colin Kaepernick, and that saw a different result? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, Patrick Mahomes is the manifestation of what all the pioneers, the old timers thought could happen, that if they were, if black quarterbacks, if black men who aspired to play quarterback in the NFL were truly given an opportunity to compete, nothing handed to them, but an opportunity to compete, one of them would eventually become the best one in the game. And if you remember, Patrick Mahomes burst onto the scene in his first year as a, as a starter, it was a second year overall. Those 50 touchdown passes electrifies the whole league with his style of play. He's not a, he's not a guy who's going to take off from the pocket as, as a practice to run, but he can do it, but it's, it's his, you know, he, he has no look throws. He, he, he's just, he's, he's so innovative in his style of play and he electrifies the league, wins the league MVP award. Then the next year, the chiefs who hadn't won a super bowl in 50 years, he leads him to a super bowl victory and he, wins the, the uh, Super Bowl MVP award, becoming the youngest player then at 24 to have a league MVP award, a Super Bowl trophy, and a Super Bowl MVP award. Going into that offseason after the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, there was no question. Patrick Mahomes was the number one player in the NFL. Okay, I mean, the, the, no general manager would argue that with you. And, you know, what happens is he sees George Floyd, the man's life being extinguished on TV. And, you know, he's in this position of incredible power, okay? As the number one player in the NFL, your platform is bigger than any other player in any other sport in the country. Your platform is bigger than most politicians. I mean, you have a global platform when you are the guy in the NFL. And he went through this process of determining what he wanted to do about this thing that affected him so deeply. And, you know, the calculus for him, it, it was beyond just, okay, this is, this is wrong and I'm going to speak out. He had to think about it in terms of, because of his standing, because of the, 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 corporate, op- the, the corporate sponsorship opportunities, the pitch man opportunities he had, the fact that you know, he, he was a quarterback of a team in Kansas City, and we know that you know, there are a lot of people whose views were not uh, receptive to what Colin Kaepernick did. And, you know, he has a brand. When you were the number one player in the NFL, all NFL players have a brand, I mean, especially starters. But Patrick Mahomes had the biggest brand at that time. And he went through this very thoughtful process of, okay, you know, his dad, Pat, uh, Pat Mahomes, was a major league reliever for several years, major league baseball pitcher. So he's the son of a, a black man and a, and, a, and a white woman. His mom is white. And he has thought about these things, you know, during the Super Bowl, he, he, there was this press conference where he talked about, you know, he's a black quarterback and he's the son of a black man and a white mom. And, you know, he takes pride in both of those things, but he identifies as being a black quarterback. And he 
decided after great thought and great deliberation that his brand and all those things had to be put aside because he had to, he had to use his platform to speak out about what he saw, which affected him so deeply. And a, a bunch of star black players had gotten together. They were so angry and so moved about what happened with George Floyd that they put together a video and in the video, they, they Patrick agreed to participate in the video, which was a really big thing because everybody understood his stature at the time. And Patrick agreed to participate in the video. And in the video, he said, Black Lives Matter. Now, we're in 2022 right now. And, and I don't know if people remember, but like the NFL wanted nothing to do with saying Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter movement, you know, many white people, again, based on polling and, and, and newspaper accounts, are, were, were, did not, did not, were not happy about that movement, okay, and the things that they thought that it, the, that movement represented. And the league, no one in the league office at that point was saying anything about Black Lives Matter. The Colin Kaepernick peaceful protest forced team owners to come to the table to try to get the protest to stop. And what they did was they funded social justice issues to, you know, try to persuade the players to stop protesting. And it, it did stop the protest movement in terms of you know, widespread support among players to continue protesting. But the league still was very apprehensive about weighing in on the Black Lives Matter movement specifically. Well, Patrick Mahomes says Black Lives Matter in this video with other star players basically calling out owners and saying, team owners, we need you to do more to partner with us in dealing with these issues that are affecting our communities. And you know, it was really a, a massive moment in league history because Commissioner Roger Goodell was really at a fork in the road. I mean, if he, Patrick Mahomes had such a massive platform, he's the number one player in the league. Quarterbacks are like the superstar franchise quarterbacks are the de facto partners of the owners in, in terms of growing the game. So Goodell really could not come out against Patrick Mahomes. And what he did was, in the video, in his video response to the player's video, Goodell basically went down their checklist and said, yes, including saying Black Lives Matter. I mean, it, it was it was really just not something that anyone expected. Now, look, that doesn't mean that there are, there's just a racism in the NFL, in NFL, obviously. But what Patrick Mahomes did was, after Colin Kaepernick pushed the league to a place he didn't want to go, Patrick Mahomes, in a different manner, pushed the league even further. All right. So, so before we let you go, I think this is, this is a good segue, unfortunately, for what may be your next book, which is The Rise of the Black Head Coach. We now have a situation with the, the NFL, with this whole block Brian Flores situation, and the NFL essentially finding, even though Stephen Ross seems to think otherwise, that, that a, a owner has decided that he was going to tell his coach, his black coach, to tank games, not do his best while meeting with his potential replacement. A white coach. Yeah. Uh, how, how has the NFL really evolved if we're still having these kinds of discussions regarding qualified head coaches being put in this position? How much more time do we have? <laughs> as long as you've got. <laughs> Sorry. 
you know, I mean, here's here's the thing. It's for your next book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, then everybody needs to go out and buy Rise of the Black Quarterback, what it means for America, if they want to see Rise of the Black Coach, what it means for America. Oh, we're going to recommend it, oh, that the way, It is a Don't great worry. book. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Very kind of you. Um, okay, look, quarterback was once – the frontier for black men in the NFL. That was, that was the, the, the goal to get to that, you know, like, you know, we talk about the frontier about, you know, young man go West at one point, that was the frontier for black players in the NFL to, to prove that they could ascend to that position and stay at that position and thrive at that position. And what that would represent about the evolution of the NFL. Well, the next frontier is coaching, because as we know, Brian Flores, the, former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, who's currently a Pittsburgh Steelers assistant coach, has alleged widespread malfeasance in the hiring practices of the NFL. And, you know, he's pointed to many things within a lawsuit that he that he has filed and that two other uh, black coaches have joined in on. And, you know, the NFL has 32 teams. It has three black head coaches. The on-field workforce of the NFL, the players, at one point a few years ago, the, the the workforce the, the on field workforce players were, were 70% african american now the numbers are i think 58.7% 58.9% so overwhelmingly still i mean it's a black league so if you have a league made up of mostly black players but black men who want to uh, you know attain the highest levels of coaching and executive positions if they're shut out from those things, if it's mostly the domain of white males, well, what does that say about the league? And, you know, Commissioner Roger Goodell, I, I, I have to say something here, right? Because I, you know, I, I don't want to make, make this sound like I'm carrying water for Goodell. But within the league office, you know, Goodell has said that, that he wants the league to be, have a more inclusive workforce, that he's committed to diversity. And he does walk the talk in his office. Like if you look in football operations in the NFL, and I wrote a story about this in the Super Bowl, there are many black faces, black men and black women who have vice president level positions, not just, you know, mailroom people, but like real positions of power. But the problem is at the team level and Goodell can't force owners to to do the right thing, for lack of a better way to put it, at the team level. Um, the NFL has you know, implemented programs. They had programs for years designed to increase the, the pipeline of qualified candidates and coaching. Um, they're doing things, you know, to try to increase the, 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 the pool of applicants for executive positions. But, you know, it's simply just ridiculous to say that at this point in 2022, there aren't enough qualified candidates for jobs. The reality of it is team owners are just not comfortable hiring black men to lead their football teams because quarterback is the face of a football team, but a head coach is the face of a football team as well. And when there are only three black head coaches, Mike Tomlin of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Todd Bowles of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and uh, Lovey Smith of the Houston Texans in a 32-team in a league, well, we know that, that the evidence proves that these owners just don't want black coaches. So – has the league evolved? Absolutely. You know, anyone who would argue otherwise is, is, is just not, you know, is being intellectually dishonest. But has the league evolved to a point where qualified people across the board in all operations and, you know, all capacities where the NFL fills jobs, 
have opportunities to to to, to fairly be considered and to rise up. No, the league is not there. Yet. So uh-huh. is the real is the real problem that ownership hasn't evolved? Absolutely. I mean, I you know, I, ownership has been forced to go to places where it didn't want to go. Like they the the, the team owners had to stop the protest movement because white fans you know, generally speaking, we're infuriated by it. And the league did that. The league put up all this money for social justice causes. And although it wasn't an, an implicit quid pro quo, it clearly was, look, we're going to give this to you. Will you stop protesting? And, and it, 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 that did happen. There were also rules that changed about, you know, what you could do on the field, you know, before games. But, but the, but the main carrot was the money for the social justice issues. Um, but at the team level, this is still a major problem. And I don't know how that changes unless, for lack of a better way to put it, owners become a little less racist. Or that there's actually minority owners as well. So you don't. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me push, you know, and I've, I've talked about that a lot. Or would that me, not solve under- the problem? I mean. Well, I understand in theory what you're saying, but let me, let me uh, go back to my Barack Obama example um, that I used a little earlier. Okay, can you imagine what would have happened if when the first black president stepped into office, he had, for all the political appointee positions um, and all the positions that, you know, the civil service positions that a new administration can appoint, I believe it's something like, something like, is it 2,000 jobs or something like that? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a big number of jobs. Can you imagine if Barack Obama said, okay, I'm, I'm going to put black people in all those positions, or I'm going to put black people in all the highest so, positions? So you think there would be a concern among a concern raised that a black person was hiring too many black people if they were in a leadership position and they would have to diversify with more of a white staff within that to not have that pushback. Exactly. Do we have a minute? I can tell you a quick anecdote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for the book, I'm talking to a, uh, a former head coach and he was telling me about a story where he was interviewing for a job once and the owner told him, look, I really like you. I think that you're a great candidate. You're very smart. You're very accomplished. But if I hire you, you're going to hire all black guys. And if I were to do that in my business, well, what positions would my son and his friends eventually have? I mean, he expanded the, 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 you know, the, the, uh, the, the, he expanded on what he was trying to say to the coach and why he wasn't going to hire him. And when I heard that, it was chilling to me, but I thought to myself, well, yeah, you know, public enemy, um, the, the the rap group um you know they they had an album fear of a black planet and there when i heard that story that was the first thing i thought about that like okay so he so this owner just assumed that he would hire all black guys and then that created fear within the owner because well if that if if you if you if you continue along that uh, along that theory of the case then well if if all if more black men rise up to positions in corporate America, well, like, the, you know, my son and his friends who by birth had a, 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 a had standing, well, now they won't have any jobs at all. Now, it, it seems crazy, but look, that's what the owner told him. So, yeah, um, I think that while while representation is important and having a black principal owner of a team would be something significant. I don't think black people can be counted on to change the hiring landscape 
Um, because and, and, and also they shouldn't have to be counted on to change the hiring landscape. Why is the right, burden on them? They shouldn't. Yeah, they, you're absolutely right. They shouldn't. And the thing is, it would be wrong for a black person, in my opinion, just coming to hire all black people. We want people to hire qualified people and for everyone to have an opportunity to compete. That's what this whole thing is about. Like if NFL owners would just say, OK, look. You know, these under, under these marginalized, historically marginalized groups. There are qualified people from an educational standpoint, from an experience standpoint, like, you know, just let me take color out of it. Like if that happened, you would see the numbers changing. But again, that's on team owners. Yeah, but that but that happens when there's people in the room that are different than you. So you can hear other people's perspectives. So having black ownership in a room when they have their annual meetings gives a perspective that these owners don't seem to have. No, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. I, I, I just think that when you look at the NFL has 32 teams, you know, let's say there's a black principal owner and that owner says, Hey, you know, there are some things we can do differently, but these owners already know that. Like, I mean, it, it's like, it's not like they don't already realize, well, this is a problem. And Goodell has acknowledged it's a problem. He said, like when they when they were shooting down after Flores' lawsuit, when they immediately came out and said his specific claims were without merit, in the next breath they said, Yeah, but we understand we gotta do better. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, so it's not like they don't realize it. And, and I, I I get what you're saying. Having someone who's a uh having a, a black a principal black owner in a room, okay, well, that person's at the table, but we're in 2022. All of these owners know where we're at. They just choose to continue doing what they do. There's clearly more. So we have to get this book doing well for you. The book is The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. There's clearly a follow-up on coaches and ownership when we get you there. Jason Reed, how can people follow you and stay updated? Um, people can follow me at, at jreedespn on Twitter, and they can uh, follow me on, at ESPN.com and Anscape.com. Thank you so much for the time. Best of luck with the book. And we hope we get to talk to you again sometime. Oh, anytime, fellas. I had a blast. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Thank you, Jason. Jeff, what a book. Our, our listeners definitely need to get it. And I'm so glad that we got into the coaching with him. Look, the Dolphins can't even tamper right, okay? I mean, what they call it? Unprecedented levels of tampering, and they didn't end up with the coach, the quarterback, or the draft picks. Their owner is suspended. They admitted they did it, but they weren't serious. Go for it, Jeff. I, I love the fact that Stephen Ross is claiming victory, that somehow he's been exonerated as a result of this. Let, let's be clear about this. He, he was accused by his coach of offering money to tank games. The, the defense is you shouldn't have taken that seriously, but he considered it so seriously that he wrote a memo. Yeah. And at the same time that all of this was going on or around that time, he was meeting with either Sean Payton or his representatives because that part he got fined one and a half million dollars for to replace him. How were they in, in context of what we just discussed with Jason Reed, not Jason Springer, <laughs> how in the world or have your, are you giving a, a black coach a chance of succeeding if you are telling him to tank? And if you're not being serious about it, why are you meeting with his eventual replacement? Yeah, I got no answers for that, but to recap, okay. Stephen mm -hmm. Ross's definition of success, Michigan man. Sorry, I got to take that shot. They got fined 
suspended, draft picks taken, still didn't successfully tank for the picks, and didn't get the people they were tampering with. That is Stephen Ross's definition of success, Jeff. And you're right. How do you succeed in an atmosphere where it's set up to these levels? And clearly the NFL just wants it to go away. I don't see how. I don't see how the NFL can admit that the things that Brian Flores said were true, but he just wasn't serious. Like who you're the lawyer. Who are they to determine intent? <laughs> well, no, I mean, they, they can do that if they want. I just don't know how he has credibility. I don't know how you can say Stephen Ross has any credibility in this situation at all. And I don't know how he's allowed to continue as an so, owner. So what they're saying is he was serious about his efforts to tamper, but not his efforts mm-hmm. to tank. Correct. Like that's that's their decision. It's ridiculous. On but it's but it's not just the uh, the opposite. It's the credibility of it. If you've made that determination that this is unprecedented, as as Goodell has said, how does he have any credibility? And when Flores goes to court, if the matter doesn't get stuck in arbitration, and and by the way, the courts have now moved up that process, so we're going to get a decision pretty quickly on that. But if but if it goes to court, uh, they're going to get to throw all the stuff in there. And he, I don't know how Stephen Ross is going to have any credibility at all. So he's probably scratching and clawing now, hoping that this goes to a quiet arbitration. The NFL wants this anywhere but a courtroom. They mm-hmm. want these documents sealed. They do not want this information out, and they don't want this conversation going on. Yeah, but you know what? We have a couple minutes left. And what I would like to just talk about for a minute, we should talk about this for much longer with somebody going forward, and this should not be forgotten, is Bill Russell. Because we talk about platforms, and, we, and, and specifically what we're talking about with Jason, what we were talking about with Jason Reed. You have a man that, yes, he was one of the great champions of sport, of any sport, but he was one of the great champions of using his platform. And the platform that he used will never be forgotten. He changed the way that athletes use their platform. He wasn't the brash person that Muhammad Ali was to make his statements. He was more the thoughtful leader. But I mean, he, you know, the but he was there for those. He was there for Muhammad Ali. Absolutely. And Muhammad Ali was 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 fighting going to Vietnam. Absolutely. And I mean, you look at an ambassador for the game of basketball and, and somebody that the players looked up to as a man separate from his talent and skill, which is its own story that deserves to be told over and over how that man helped to change the game itself, the way it was played, the way people guarded him. But then what he did off the court, what he did once he moved on past his playing days is something that like we talked about the calculations that, that Pat Mahomes makes about going into videos, the calculations that other athletes make about doing things Bill Russell made that calculation and he decided that he too was willing to risk his status to take stands that may be seen as divisive by people in an era that didn't necessarily want him speaking up. If you look at the, I hate the old phrase of the Mount Rushmore's, but if you look at the Mount Rushmore of the people that we try to focus on, the, the, the people that using, didn't stick to sports, use, yes, that use their platforms. Bill Russell is on that. Billie Jean King is on that. Jackie Robinson is on that. Those are the greats for not just advancing sports, but advancing society. Do you think he's being given the recognition he deserves? It seems like the news cycle kind of moved on with his passing rather quickly. And I don't know that he's gotten 
the recognition for the groundwork that he laid for other athletes to be able to one have the platform to utilize and then to utilize that platform that they have. Oh, come on. We could spend four hours every day for the next year discussing that, 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 that we're talking about the attention span of our society. Now, got, of course, he's not getting the recognition. One minute for you to discuss it. So may say something <laughs> profound. So, so, for, one so, minute. For today's, so for today's <laughs> youth, that's about it. That's all we should be discussing. Hey, hey, so, I'm not Bill, today's youth and I've got an attention span that short, too. Thank you. <laughs> Bill, Bill Russell. And what he did should never be forgotten. You will never say too much about what Bill Russell contributed to society, just like you will never say too much about Jackie Robinson. And I believe the same thing about Billie Jean King. There are people in sports that showed why the people who say they should just shut up and play ball are so wrong. Because without Jackie Robinson, without Bill Russell, without Billie Jean King, Society doesn't advance, doesn't evolve the way that it needed to. I'm going to leave it there. I got nothing better to say. Way to bring it, Jeff. Strong close. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work.